Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Twitter is actively blocking right now this instant stories from the New York Post alleging corruption and the Biden family receiving millions of dollars from communist China. This is election interference and we are 19 days out from an election. It has no precedent in the history of democracy. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Matthew Iglesias here with Ezra Klein. Uh, We're going to be returning to the the normal Tuesday panel format after uh, a little bit of an absence, and I'm, I'm hoping we will tackle the Amy Comey Barrett hearings there. But for now, Ezra and I wanted to talk about something that is a little, I think, more interesting, um, which is this kerfluffle about the New York Post story about Hunter Biden and Twitter and Facebook's handling of it and the United States' Congress's handling of their handling of it. So just like what like what was the story here? So I want to note we're also going to talk about the stimulus package and the new the administration's new deal and whether Pelosi should take it. But but we're starting here in the in the fever swamps. So what happens yesterday is that the New York Post in the morning comes out with a story written by somebody who's like a former Sean Hannity segment producer who's like only ever produced three stories at the Post and they're all on this. And the nature of the story is very peculiar. What it says is that um, (laughs) – I don't even know how to say this without laughing – that there is a Delaware computer repair store guy and somebody brought in a computer. But he's not sure who because he's an eye condition that prevents him from being able to tell who brings in computers. But somebody brought in a computer and it included a Bo Biden Foundation sticker on it. And it was like a like a memory problem on the computer. And so the guy recovered a bunch of memory and then like nobody came and picked up the computer. And to be a little Seinfeldian about this, yada, 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 he gives it to Rudy Giuliani's lawyer. And then I guess Rudy Giuliani sits on it for a while. And then Rudy Gianni gives it to the New York Post. And this all like the big like upshot of this is that on this computer are apparently some emails, uh, if you believe any of this, which I'm not sure one should, uh, are some emails suggesting that Hunter Biden wanted to introduce his father to like somebody high up at Burisma. Um, and, you know, this was before his father like fire, like agreed and helped to fire the um, Ukrainian prosecutor who everybody in the democratic, small d democratic world wanted to fire because he was not doing things like prosecuting Burisma. So number one, I want to say before we get into any of this, the claim being made in the emails, in the possible emails here, that Joe Biden somehow fired this prosecutor who he could only fire because everybody in like Western world politics who cared about corruption wanted to fire this prosecutor, that he fired him because of something about Burisma is bullshit. 
Like this prosecutor is being fired because he wasn't doing corruption investigations like Burisma, not because he was. Um, so it's like this whole thing is built like on a rotten core. So one can like chase this in circles all day. What then happens though, is very, very unusual, which is that this comes out and within a couple of hours, Facebook and Twitter both deploy a very unusual and heavy level of moderation against it. Facebook says they're doing, they're throwing what, what some people now call like the virality circuit breaker. So the New York Post is allowed to post this on their page and so can other people, but they are preventing it from being spread virally until fact checkers can decide whether or not this story is actually true. And then the second thing that happens is Twitter comes out and they do an even more heavy handed thing where they like basically shut the story down. And like when you try to share it, like a message comes up about how the story is, 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 is being suppressed. So the conservative world freaks out. It gets a ton more attention. A bunch of conservatives now want to like subpoena like Jack Dorsey, like Ted Cruz said he's going to do that from the Senate. I'll say there's one big thing that I think will get us to like what, what is happening in the platforms and then like what we should think about what, what is happening in them, which is on the one hand, I looked at this, I'm like, this is an insane thing to do. Like this is a crazy level of moderation against a dumb story that isn't going to have any effect. But Casey Newton, uh, our former colleague at The Verge, who uh, now runs a platformer newsletter, has, I think, a, a, a more considered take on this. And he says that something the platforms have been preparing for all since 2016 is what to do in the case of a hack and leak operation, particularly in the case of an operation where it looks like it has happened is a foreign government like Russia has hacked somebody and is now just passing the hack documents through an intermediary to try to affect an American election. Because like the platforms, I think correctly, feel terrible about their role doing this or abetting this in 2016, as by the way, should media outlets. Um, and this gets maybe to the role of the New York Post here. And that what they saw immediately when this came up is like that potentially. And so like they throw the circuit breaker because like they need to figure out if this is happening again. If it's a real story, they'll like take it off and like let it go. But if it's not, they won't um, because they don't want to be part of a Russian disinformation campaign. And then the big question becomes, how do you know? And like whose say on this is going to ultimately prove valid or be reliable in like the fog of disinformation campaigns that we currently live in? So like that's where we are, to my knowledge, now. Right. And so now I think it's worth talking about the New York Post here, because this gets at part of the dilemma, I think, facing technology companies, because technology companies don't want to do journalism, basically. Right. They think it is expensive. It's annoying. People yell at you all the time when They're you do journalism. totally correct about right. all these things, by the way. So, so, so they don't they don't they don't want to do journalism. What would be great for them is if they could just say, you know, it's like some people are American and some people are Brazilian and some things are journalism and some things are not because then you could treat journalism in certain ways. Uh, but the New York Post is like definitely journalism. Like it's a newspaper and people read it. Uh, but it's also part of Rupert Murdoch's transcontinental media empire. And they do things like run this story, which while it may or may not be accurate, it did not have the tires kicked on it in a proper journalistic way. If somebody shows up at your door, <laughs> if Rudy Giuliani shows up at your door with this like absurd cock and bull story about a computer guy in Delaware and a sticker. Like you have to ask some questions 
right? Like sourcing questions about the actual provenance of this and like what is going on here, particularly because the underlying implication of the story is definitely false, right? Like the, the, the way this goes in like narrative logic is that Joe Biden, while denying wrongdoing in the firing of Victor Shokin, said, I never spoke with my son, Bo, about his work in Ukraine. So this email could potentially indicate that it wasn't true that Joe Biden never spoke to Hunter about Hunter's work in Ukraine, which would raise new questions, blah, 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 blah. But like, ultimately, the core allegation that Joe Biden, who, to be clear, as vice president of the United States, is not empowered to fire prosecutors in Ukraine, right? right. Like, like what happened the here- The core thing here is Joe Biden, like, exaggerated his own role well, in this the, piece of American foreign the, policy, the, too. The whole international community, right? The European Union, the IMF, the European Bank for Reconstruction Development. Senate Republicans. Senate, everybody wanted to get the Ukrainians to fire this guy. And Biden served as the emissary of the Western community to like literally show up in Kiev and yell at them, right? Like that's what he did. And it's not in any kind of dispute. Really. Um, But the Post just kind of runs this story, which then the Trump campaign was immediately running with. Right. And this was this was, you know, Hillary's emails redux. And the problem that you get into for for the tech companies is they want to say, well, maybe there's going to be like a bright line rule against foreign hacking operations. But you can't tell if something's a foreign hacking operation, like right when it happens, even WikiLeaks. Right. So like in retrospect, what we all believe is that the Russian government hacked those emails and delivered them to Julian Assange, who then published them. But like at the time, the presentation was that a whistleblower at the DNC had given these emails to WikiLeaks. Right. And like, I think that always it was always kind of clear what was going on there, but it wasn't known and to some extent continues to be disputed. Right. Like if you call call up Vladimir Putin, he'll be like, yeah, we didn't do that. Um, So you want to say, okay, well, we're not going to have Russian government disinformation campaigns, but Facebook doesn't and Twitter, they're not in a position to know exactly where this email came from or exactly what's true and what's not true. And they're certainly not going to mount on their own recognizance an investigation of it. And like us, you and I, as as writers and sometimes as editors and as practitioners, I, I think we are comfortable dealing with this level of ambiguity, right? And I, I did not write a story about this, but if I did write a story about it, I would say the thing here is that Joe Biden, serving as an emissary of the Western community, removed a corrupt prosecutor from Ukraine. That removed prosecutor did not want to say, I lost my job because I was super corrupt. So he has spun out this other conspiracy theory, which Republicans like because they're trying to win the election against Joe Biden. And everything that has happened since then is a downstream consequence of that. And that's just like that. That's how journalism works. Like, not everybody has to agree with my take on the story, but that's my take. Like, we're supposed to try to reach a view about what's true and what's not, tell people that, and accept that other people are going to yell at us because they don't agree with us. But social media companies would like there to be some 
external standard that they can appeal to. And by appealing to the external standard, this might be part of a foreign disinformation campaign. They wound up making everyone on the right incredibly angry. So I think there there are a couple very interesting gray areas that this pulls up. And and let me start on the journalism one, because uh, as you said, that's sort of what we do in sort of take journalism or explain our journalism. There's also the question in journalism of simply like, can we verify if this is true? Right? So I think it was the Daily Beast maybe spoke to the computer store guy. And he said, like, he's afraid for his life and, you know, believes in the Seth Rich conspiracy. But it's like, nobody knows what is happening with this guy. And nobody knows really, like, why he would have found Rudy Giuliani's lawyer. Um, Rudy Giuliani has a lot of known uh, contacts with Russian intelligence. A lot of them are just, like, way out there in the daylight. So, like, this would be a very – you can imagine a number of different ways for this to have played out. So one issue here – is it journalism itself has a very weird and somewhat complicated relationship with leaked documents and hacked documents. And where the line is between one and the other is, is a little bit unknown. And, and so I'll give an example of something that, that I enjoyed as a piece of journalism. A couple of years ago, BuzzFeed News published a huge, huge, huge dump of emails that showed the way in which uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, if anybody remembers him, and Steve Bannon and a bunch of other senior players at Breitbart News had been very consciously cultivating the alt-right or the white supremacist right. And what they got were a bunch of emails, like really, really serious, like private emails between Milo and other people. Kind of showed like the amount of like plagiarism or ghostwriting happening in Milo's operation of that period, showed what, ba- what Bannon was thinking internally. And like that was a leak. Presumably, um, I don't know that it was a hack. It, it, it could have been. But journalists all the time get things where certainly to the party who did not want these private documents coming out, like it feels really unfair. And it would a little bit be understood in some cases, even as a crime for them to have come out if they came out a, a, another way. Like if you come and you take my emails, it's like a, a, like that's a crime. Um, so we get documents that are leaked and sometimes even documents that are hacked and we use them like hopefully to the greater good. Uh, then there's this issue of like, what happens when the hacker has an agenda or the leaker has an agenda? And usually the idea is that an agenda does not disqualify information from being useful. I mean, the amount of information the political journalists get from opposing campaigns or doing oppo dumps is pretty significant. And the fact that that opposing campaign has a rooting interest in seeing the other side do poorly doesn't make the information untrue. But then there's like a different strategy or, or test applied to a foreign government. Um, but again, the foreign governments sort of understand this, the, so they give just enough plausible deniability. It's coming through WikiLeaks or something like that. And so one issue here, and one reason there's not a, a, an easy decider, it really comes down to this question of not just what should platforms have learned from 2016, but what should media organizations have learned from 2016? Like, let's say that there is a good chance this is a Russian disinformation campaign. Should the New York Post have published it? And I think what you're seeing on the right is the answer is yes, that what happened in 2016 was great. Um, it was sort of embarrassing when parts of it came out, but like they won the election arguably because of it. And that if the Russians are going to, you know, like route some more interesting information about how Joe Biden is bad, like, like they should do that. And like we will publish it. Um, and similarly, obviously <laughs> this happened when, uh, Donald Trump tried to withhold arms aid from Ukraine in order to get them to open up a corruption investigation from Joe Biden, uh, against Joe Biden that would then be covered in all the papers. Like that was a disinformation campaign 
routed through an Eastern European country coming from America itself. And Republicans did not want to impeach Donald Trump over it. And some of them don't even think he did anything wrong. And so like, that's one, I think, really important uh, phase of all this. The other one, I think, really does apply to the platforms, which is I would say we are seeing a playbook emerge here on, on both sides, which is like the platforms have certain things they want to shut down. So they've become more aggressive towards Donald Trump recently when he has uh, sent some tweets. They say like, this is COVID misinformation or disinformation, and we're not going to let this go forward because like we have a rule that you're not allowed to misinform people about the coronavirus on Twitter. And that's true even if you're the president or on Facebook. And that's true even if you're the president. And they they applied it to this too. And it happens to be the case that the right the president from the Republican Party is like a conspiracy theorist who lies constantly. And a lot of the right-wing media institutions um, adhere to very low uh, empirical or ontological standards and so run afoul of this stuff a lot more. But then the right, what they do is they then use this as a kind of Streisand effect and like spin up an entire hubbub about whether or not what's really happening and whether the real issue here is censorship, which simultaneously makes them look and feel aggrieved, but also drives more attention to the original story. There's a very plausible argument that this underlying story is getting somewhat more attention, although in a different way than it would have gotten if none of this um, very high-profile moderation had been applied to it at all. So, you know, you were talking earlier about, you know, journalism and and you used the word should, uh, which I think is an important word in this context. Because one way that's spoken like a philosophy major. No, no, no. I mean, one way that the (laughs) debate gets tricky is that if somebody says the New York Times shouldn't have given so much coverage to the Hillary Clinton email scandal, everybody understands that that's an appeal to some notion of journalistic ethics or the public interest. And that it doesn't mean the New York Times should have been prohibited by law from giving that much coverage to the Hillary Clinton email scandal. It's just like we have a consensus that like people yell at journalists all the time and that the yelling is just meant to be normative, right? Technology companies do not claim to have a corpus of ethics the way that journalists do. Uh, And at the same time, are implicated in regulatory issues in a way that journalists aren't. So when people say things like, Twitter shouldn't shut down, you know, Donald Trump. Twitter shouldn't censor the New York Post like that. The argument carries the implication that there should be a regulatory bar against them doing that, right? By the same token, right? So like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz say they're going to drag executives from Twitter and Facebook to testify before Capitol Hill to talk about this, where, again, they're they're not introducing a bill. But the the implication of that is that there is a regulatory issue here. So Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is often invoked, uh, as is the concept that there is an antitrust issue here, right? And that's part of what makes this different. And I think it's like important to be really clear here, right? Like if you take the idea of free speech like at all seriously, like free speech for Twitter means that they get to decide what goes on Twitter. Like free speech is not just whatever goes on Twitter, right? Like if if you own a bookstore, 
right? And there's like a book and you're like, I, yeah, I don't want Bill O'Reilly books in my store. I think those books are garbage. And then the government is like, no, you have to stock Bill O'Reilly's books. Like that's that's not free speech, right? And and I think in the case of Twitter, because Twitter's actually a kind of small company, even though like news people are really into it, that like that's really clear. That like the free speech position is that Jack Dorsey and his team can do whatever they want, and you can yell at them if you want to, but like it's just their product. Yes, Twitter is in no way a monopoly. Right. Whereas with Facebook, you get the question of, okay. Clearly, a random small bookstore owner can stock whatever books they want and can put the books on whatever shelf they want. I mean, there's a lot. You know, it it matters in a bookstore whether your cover faces out or you're sideways, whether you're on the front table, whether you're, uh, you know, John recommends, whatever kind of thing. But it's like it's your bookstore. You can do whatever you want with it. Uh, Facebook, though is currently governed by bookstore principles, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg and his team, they just do whatever they want to do with it. Uh, But Facebook is really big. Like, it's a really big bookstore. There appear to be significant network effects to Facebook. So, like, even if you don't love Facebook, it's really hard. It's like you and your seven friends who also don't like Facebook, can't just like go over to Facebook too, because uh, like the, the, the world doesn't work that way. So there's a question of whether there should be some kind of special regulatory framework that applies there. And I think that would be a good conversation to have as a country. Uh, but it really has to take place like separate from outrage of the day about specific decisions that are built there. Can I add an example to that? Yeah. Because when when you say that it has to take place separately from these decisions, I think Holly is a good example of why. So one of the things Holly is focused on and that has come up a lot is this idea of Section 230 of the of the Communications Decency Act. And what Section 230 basically does is give these platforms immunity from what is published on their uh, on, on their platforms. But the way it was built, it was built to make it easier for them to uh, moderate child pornography stuff. Because the idea was, if when they moderate things, that is implicitly taking responsibility for everything that comes on, then like if they're trying to like moderate the worst things, but like the third worst things, which are just like offensive or Nazis or something else, are on there, and they're like implicitly now legally liable for them, it's going to be a disaster. Now, Holly has talked about repealing that. If you repealed that, it would not make it easier for the New York Post to put like bullshit stories on Facebook and Twitter. It would make it harder. It'd make it harder for anybody who is not an unbelievably well-verified fact-checking organization to put anything anywhere because like the way you would have to rewrite 230 in a very different way, which I've not seen like these folks having good ideas for how to do. Like if you got rid of 230, then all of a sudden, um, all these uh, institutions are liable for anything Donald Trump posts onto their platforms. And Donald Trump posts things that are wrong. He posts things that are dangerous. He posts things that in, in another context could even be libelous. And so, like, then you get into some real, some real weird issues. So it's like, I am interested as you are in like a different framework for, for regulation here. But what I've heard is very reactive and almost instinctual and not well thought through. Right. Well, and you would have to think about what is your goal, right? Because right now, a lot of people, they'll like talk about means, like, well, we should change 230. 
But like, there's a lot of things you can like the the way government and politics and stuff works. It's like there's a lot of different things you could do. But what, before you talk about the things you could do, you should have a conversation about what you're trying to achieve. Right. So if you look at like 20th century communications law, right, from before the Internet exists, we have two models really for this. One is how we treat telephones. And the idea of the regulatory framework for phone calls is that we really, 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 really do not want the companies that own the telephone switching infrastructure to be operating as like a surveillance machine, right? So there is absolutely no liability accruing to AT&T or, or whatever other phone company for anything that happens over phone calls. Like I can use the phone to organize, um, you know, like a, I, I wouldn't. Uh, a mafia Don could use the phone network to organize the murder of dozens and dozens of people over a period of decades. And the phone company is not at all responsible for that, right? Like, and it, they're legally not responsible. And we also, as a society, have a consensus. Like, you don't write articles being like terror groups use telephones to communicate right in a way that implies the phone company is responsible because like the last thing that we want is the executives of phone companies saying well we need to listen in on every conversation we need to like cut certain people off from the phone network right it's like anything goes but they're then subject to strict common carrier rules like they just have to treat all sound equal you know it it is what it is then we have broadcast television right which is regulated for similar natural monopoly reasons to why we regulate phone companies, but it's regulated with the reverse goal. The idea of particularly old school, big three network broadcast television is that it should be extremely inoffensive, right? So like you can't have sex, you can't have violence, you can't have people swearing, like you definitely can't have porn. Um, you used to have like the fairness doctrine, like you could not have opinionated television shows on network television. And like, it was bland, right? Like, this is like the, the joke about 20th century American culture is that broadcast television was incredibly bland and boring. And when we started to have cable and other things, like you could be more edgy, uh, but sophisticated people would like read books or you would go to the movie theater because like network television was really dumbed down and, and generic. And I could see the case like, there's some merit, I think, to trying to push social media in either of those directions, right? So, like, one idea would be, like, look, we don't want Facebook, like, controlling what we see. So it should be less moderated, like, both, like, not shutting down President Trump because you think he's lying, but also not using, like, engagement algorithms that, like, pump up the most inflammatory thing that anyone can post and make it more like, you know www.thefacebook.com from 2005, where just like, I go to Ezra Klein's page, and I just see whatever you posted there. And if I don't go to your page, I don't see anything. Like, that's one vision. Or we could say, no, we want to make Facebook and YouTube similar to broadcast television. So they're just like censoring everybody. <laughs> You know, because it's like we don't want crazy stuff happening here. It's going to be like birthday greetings, tips for how to take care of your cat, you know, some anodyne stuff about the weather. And like if you want the like to and fro of the Internet, the way they've got porn off of them. Right. It's not like there's no pornography on the Internet, but there's no pornography on Facebook. Right. Like 
they got rid of that and they could go go kind of further that way. Uh, but what we keep having is these like selective invocations of the idea of regulation to create like hyper specific outcomes. Like, I don't want you to be mean to Donald Trump or I don't like that Ben Shapiro content does so well on this platform. But like you need to say in the abstract, like, like, do we want to go in the direction of a common carrier or do we want to go in the direction of bland and inoffensive? And I think the problem with this conversation is there is no even moderately good answer that any of the directions we go are just kind of bad. So, look, the issue with actual moderation is that you can't do it at the scale well. And in the places where it is going to be most important, you may not really be able to do it credibly at all. And that is all the more true when you're dealing with a fractured, polarized society. And in particular, where one party in there has united behind an informational ecosystem that is simply trash, to be blunt about it. And so there isn't going to be an answer like where one thing that the platforms want to do is maintain credibility with a wide swath of Americans of, of all political persuasions. And also the Republican Party is aligned behind Donald Trump, um, who has benefited from and then in some ways himself tried to launch disinformation campaigns and is himself like very prone to conspiracy theorizing and saying things that are untrue. Um, there is not a form of moderation there that is going to make like not just everybody happy, but probably anybody happy. And on the other hand, letting things that are this powerful and algorithmic and viral just like do anything they want is bad. Um, like and is going to create uh, an unbelievable free for all of disinformation campaigns and and toxification of American discourse. And then doing sort of what you were saying, Matt, of like regulating them into a kind of dumb pipe. Feels like an infringement on the on on basically these companies' ability to 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 exist and, and and do their role. Like telling Facebook it can't have virality and a news feed um, is bad. And so then you get into maybe, maybe we should break them up. Maybe the point is simply that they're too big. But that's a also somewhat weird solution to this problem. So I just want to note because I think it's sometimes important to say this. I don't think there is a good policy here. I think there are less bad ones, and I'm open to all kinds of different ideas. But 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 I do think a, a problem just very fundamentally is that. This is not a question with an easy solution, um, and it may not even be one with a, a credible solution at all. Now, like one version of it is that you just want to have, and this is something that I've always favored, is that basically the way these platforms work currently is that you are in a very strange way, and Andrew Morantz is a good piece on this in The New Yorker just last week, in a strange way, you are subject to more aggressive moderation the smaller you are. Um, so if you're like a, a, a no-name account um, with like a couple hundred followers or something and you break a rule and for whatever reason, your breaking of that rule gets noticed, which obviously often doesn't happen, like the full hammer can come down on you. But if you're Donald Trump, like there's a newsworthiness exception. Um, if you are a media platform in general, like there are all kinds of exceptions for like what you're putting up and newsworthiness and so on. And I've often thought we should have in, in these platforms the highest standards on the biggest pages. Like the bigger you are, you should actually just flip into new levels of moderation um, that become more restrictive. And if that means that like bigger pages get more boring along the Mataglacius um, uh, lines there, I think that's fine. I think it is fine for bigger people on them to be more boring. And like, it's a little bit like what we want to do in finance, where people want to put taxes on bigger and bigger and bigger companies. So it becomes harder and harder and harder for them to operate. They have higher capital standards, et cetera. Because like, 
when you become like too big to fail, like it's actually better for the system to begin slowing you down and like actually creating a, a competitive dynamic where other companies can come up. That's the 20th century media model, right? Where like network television is extremely boring. Daily newspapers are somewhat less boring. Then magazines are less boring than newspapers. Alt weeklies have like tiny circulation, but they're like advertising hookers in the back. And like, you know, it's like anything goes there, right? But like also like that's where you find out about the cool shows. And and as you get bigger and more influential, you have to just be more like banal. Uh, so another thing that I read a couple years ago now that that's has influenced my thinking about this is uh, Hunt Alcott uh, with three uh, co-authors, some of whom have hard to pronounce names, uh, did, did a paper called The Welfare Effects of Social Media. And basically they like bribed some people to turn off Facebook for four weeks uh, in advance of the midterms. And they like, re you know, there was a control group, a randomization group, and they looked at what happened. And Importantly, the people who turned Facebook off were worse informed than the people who kept using it. So in the aggregate, right, like there is misinformation on Facebook, but there is more signal than noise on there, like turning it off. Um, now, in theory, you could take all the time that you used to spend on Facebook and like use it digging into Financial Times archives and like know all kinds of things about oil contracts. But like that's not actually what people did. Instead, they found that people um, watched more TV, uh, they hung out more with their friends and family, and they knew less about the news. Um, and they were also happier. <laughs> so the upshot of this is that like, Facebook is not great. Like, it's secretly making people miserable. And the short-term detachment from Facebook caused, like, longer-term detachment. But it isn't a, in the aggregate, vector for misinformation. And, you know, one thing that I wonder about, because their test of, like, how people are informed is... um you know, a, a little a little crude. But like, this is a classic finding from the polarization literature is that like, the more you know about politics, like the more wrong you can become about like a really big picture question. Because you like, I, I think about the fact that like, um, in February, before the pandemic struck, like the American economy was really good. And if you just like asked some idiot who didn't know anything about politics, they'd be like, economy's going great. But if you ask like a super sophisticated progressive person, they could give you all kinds of reasons why the economy was terrible. Like not because they were like getting misinformation, but because like th there's just like a there's a lot of there's a lot of true facts about the world that people can assimilate and then arrange in a way that reduces their cognitive dissonance about things. And in some ways, like that's the like tr true information is the real misinformation. In some way, like this yes. whole Hunter Biden story, like the the factual elements of it, like they like pile on. Right. So that you like create in your mind the idea that there's some important Ukraine scandal. But like there just isn't. And like obtaining more true facts about Hunter Biden's work with Burisma, like is only going to make you more misinformed because Hunter seems like a sketchy guy. There's a lot of dubious characters hanging around in Ukraine. Um, and like you don't need to know anything at all about this story. And like feeding people true information about the exploits of Hunter Biden is a way of misinforming them about like the stakes of the 2020 presidential election. All right, let's take a break and then talk about the stakes of the stimulus vote or maybe not vote coming up.
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Nancy Pelosi and Steve Mnuchin have been talking about stimulus. Uh, they seem to really enjoy talking with each other. Their talks every day. Nothing seems to change. Uh, but Mnuchin has brought his bid for stimulus all the way up to $1.8 trillion from what used to be 1.6. And Pelosi's bill that she's behind is a $2.2 trillion bill. But there are sticking which is down from 3.3. Yes. But there are sticking points other than the uh headline number. And it now seems like quietly, maybe Pelosi is saying she's ready to settle on 1.8 if she can get the get the terms right. It's not hundred percent clear to me what the terms are. Some of it has to do with how much money goes to like tribal entities. Some of it has to do with how the testing works. Some of it has to do with how we like characterize like how bad the pandemic is in certain places. But there's no publicly available paper on any of this. So like both sides keep like if you ask them, because the natural question to ask is that these positions don't seem that different. So, like, why haven't you made a deal? And if you ask them, they'll be like, oh, no, we're far apart on so many issues. And then they just don't sound that far apart. And it at least appears that the real issue, so to speak, is that, for one thing, it's clear that Mnuchin does not speak for Senate Republicans, right? And he is way out on a limb in doing this deal. Uh, Mitch McConnell, as we record, is introducing a $500 billion stimulus, um, which is much less than than 1.8. And there's just a real question as to like, does Pelosi actually want to get a deal done here? Or does she just want to avoid taking the blame for the absence of a deal? Because naturally, like, if it was three weeks before an election, and the economy was stalling out, and President Joe Biden went to congressional Republicans and was like, I'd like a $1.8 trillion stimulus bill. Like, there is no way that would happen, right? And Pelosi is not, Democrats are just like not willing to be rejectionists on the level of a uh, John Boehner, but they're not above a little politicking either. And so if they can have it be that it's like, well, Trump won't agree to our great testing ideas, like, are they so sad about that? Yeah, so it's an 
it's an interesting question what the bottom lines are. I do want to say a little bit about what is in the deal here. So the new offer has um, $300 billion for cities and states, um, up from $250 billion in the last proposal. Um, it's got $400 weekly enhanced unemployment insurance benefits, which is down from $600, which is what was in the um, CARES Act, but is up from the nothing that is there now. Um, and it increases the duration of these. I'm cribbing a bit from uh, some great reporting done by our former colleague, Jeff Stein, here. Um, the White House's offer on stimulus has gone up to $1,000 dollar check per child instead of the $500 per child, which seems to be a replacement for a child tax credit that Pelosi wanted separately. So unlike the big ticket items that I would have told you they are fighting about a couple of weeks ago, when you listen to Pelosi, she's not really naming those items anymore. Like she is not out there saying this state and local aid offer is reprehensible. It's too low. It won't solve the problem. She's making a couple different points, but the big one she keeps saying is that there is no plan to fight the virus in here. I think you've been kind of framing that in the testing. I've heard her frame it a little bit more broadly, that she wants this deal to include like the administration um, putting forward a plan with real funding for like what we're going to do to get the virus under control. I don't exactly know what to say about that. I also think it would be good if the administration had a plan and some level of competence and a desire to implement an anti-coronavirus strategy. Like, I but think they you don't. should tackle climate change. You know, like this, right. there's a lot of things Trump should do. But it's not clear to me, like in the context that we are actually in now, why you would hold up really, really needed help for families, for businesses over that. Then, as you say, Matt, there's this issue of, well, okay, we're three weeks before an election. Like, does Pelosi want to give Donald Trump like this huge victory? And I don't think it is a huge victory. Zach Carter has a good piece on this uh, over at Huffington Post, but but he makes the argument. I think his argument is correct. This money is not going to get into the economy that quickly, and it's not going to turn anything around that quickly. That's not how this kind of money works. And so you're basically doing a deal that is going to begin like filtering out, like let's say they got the deal done in the next like five, because it has to go to Senate Republicans. It needs to be signed by Donald Trump. That needs to be implemented. Like, and then people need to apply for money if you're dealing with the business sides of it and state and local um, governments, you need to distribute the money and disperse funds. Like this doesn't happen in 48 hours. And so what you have happening here is like, a deal that is going to begin stimulating the economy, like in in bulk, probably largely after the election. I mean, it'll help a little bit before some checks will go out. Like, I don't want to take all that away, but this is not a deal that is going to save Donald Trump's ass. Like, this is a deal that they're probably not going to be able to get if Trump loses, by the way, because, and this goes to the other, I think, very important point. The reason there might be a deal isn't just Mnuchin, it's Trump. Trump has been out now after going on Twitter and saying that um, in what turned out to be misinformation, that he was telling his representatives to stop negotiating, which is going to win the election and then pass a much bigger stimulus. He's been out saying, no, he actually does want a stimulus bill. He he did a Rush Limbaugh show where he said he he wants something much bigger than what the Democrats want, bigger than $2.2 trillion. The White House says he actually doesn't. He wants something under $2 trillion. But nevertheless, the pressure to get a deal done right now that is relevant and particularly relevant to Senate Republicans is coming from Donald Trump. And to me, that makes the Mitch McConnell side of this deal totally irrelevant. So like, let's say that Nancy Pelosi and Mnuchin come to this deal. And, um, you know, whatever the thing they do, the House Democrats pass out in four days. And then it gets to McConnell and McConnell says, I'm really sorry, but 500 billion is my offer. Great. Like let McConnell and Senate Republicans take the blame for that one. Let Donald Trump send a bunch of tweets about how much McConnell uh, sucks. I just like that does not seem to me to be Nancy Pelosi's problem. And so 
I don't fully understand in this case what Nancy Pelosi's issue is. I know she thinks this is not a great deal. And what I think is actually going on here is that she does not think she has gotten everything she can get out of the deal. And so, like, we might just be in the final, like, 48 hours of a deal-making process where she's not willing to say it's done yet because she feels that what has happened in the past 72 hours is Trump sent that tweet, panicked when he realized how bad the reaction was, and now wants to get a deal done enough that there's actually a substantial amount that she can get in return. And she just does not believe that she has gotten the best deal she can get, but she intends to make one. It is very hard at this juncture to separate that world out from Nancy Pelosi's decided she does not want to get a deal done yet. Something you're seeing is that there is clearly a caucus strategy here because very few House Democrats have come out pushing uh, Pelosi. Rokana has, um, Spanberger has out of Virginia, but I think it's like three or four so far as of when we're talking. It's not like it is very clear that there's been a communication out to House Democrats that like there is a strategy here and like they need to hold the line. And I don't think they would be comfortable with a simply no deal strategy. Well, and I, I think, you know, to 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 set the, the stage here, right, in an interesting way, the big advocates of Pelosi should stop playing hardball, should stop demanding the maximum, should stop being a political strategist and should instead do the high minded West Wing compromise are the hard bitten leftists of the Internet who are constant like all they do is criticize Democrats for acting the way they are now calling on Democrats to to act, up to and including, uh, like, your friend and mine, uh, Zach Carter, who's been a, a strong advocate for Pelosi taking this bill. In April, he referred to the CARES Act as the worst bill in 25 years. I very uh, much which, disagree with Zach on which, this point, but he was upset about business immunity and business issues in the CARES Act, and this bill is constructed differently. I really disagree with that point of Zach's, but it's not pure hypocrisy. I, no, it's it's not that it's hypocrisy, I think. It's that it is a disposition to believe that Nancy Pelosi has very poor tactical judgment. You know what I mean? Is like I think what you're seeing here. Um so a, a natural constituency though for Democrats should make a deal under these circumstances is the public sector employee unions. Their members' livelihoods are on the line in this deal-making. And at an earlier time, when the sticking point was, is there going to be state and local government aid? Like, obviously, they were like, Pelosi, hold fast, right? And you could have imagined a situation in which Pelosi was maneuvered into blocking vast amounts of financial assistance to Americans in need because, like, the teachers in AFSCME were holding out for state and local government aid. But Mnuchin is now offering the state and local government, right? And interestingly, like I, I talk to, to the union leaders, I, I follow their social media presences, and they are not calling on Pelosi to cave here. The frontline House Democrats, right before Trump sent that infamous tweet, I was hearing from people involved in Democratic Senate campaigns, and they were panicking that Pelosi was about to cave and make the $1.6 trillion deal with Mnuchin because frontline House members and the Problem Solvers Caucus were like, we got to do a deal. We got to do a deal, right? And now they're not panicking and calling for a deal either. All of which makes me think, if there is a problem here, it's a miscalculation rather than an excessive cynicism. But like the people who want a deal 
like for their own personal self-interest, they are acting like this course of action is going to get them a deal. You know what I mean? Like they're not kicking and screaming. The people kicking and screaming are like the Rokanas of the world. They're he's like a, one of the most interesting house members, but like he has a safe seat. Like he's trying to be like an ideas guy who has a high profile. And so as long as that's going on, like I do think that Pelosi is like squeezing extra drops of blood out of Steve Mnuchin. My question is why bother given that the odds of this deal passing the Senate, particularly passing the Senate unmolested, seem really, really low to me. So it's like, what are we doing here? It's, it seems like almost just like showing off, right? Like, 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 what, like what's the point in this? Both, both strategic sides of this will make the same point, which I, I have to assume Pelosi understands, um, which is that after the election, there is no deal. Right. Which is to say that if Biden wins the election, Republicans are never going to permit a deal. And so you really have this one shot um, before like, and, and then it's like on the other side, you wrote a good piece, Matt, about possibly doing um, stimulus and, and, and coronavirus work through budget reconciliation. I've written a million pieces now about getting rid of the filibuster to just be able to actually govern if Democrats take back the, the Senate as well. But either way, until like January, like late January, when you have a new government, like there's going to be nothing. And there's just going to be a worsening economic situation. And so if you assume this is like your last point to get a deal, like one thing that becomes very important is you need to get a deal. Like you need to take a deal and get it now so that there's not simply a collapse between now and then. And another is that you want to get the best deal you can because you're not going to be able to come back for more, which, you know, like testing is really important, um, for instance. And so as you say, like a lot of things in the end right here, come down to, do you think Pelosi has a good sense of the substance here? Like what is needed and what is important? Is she being advised by good people? And then a good feel for like the politics and the deal making. And you can only really judge these things like after they play out, but she is held pretty firm and Trump has ultimately come back to the table and they've begun making some real concessions. And as you say, when you listen now, they're not far apart. And Pelosi is now under a lot of pressure. Like she just went on CNN and like got into a fight with Wolf Blitzer. And so I ex- like if I had to bet, I think we get a, a deal between um, Pelosi and Mnuchin and not too long, barring some like Trump watched the Wolf Blitzer thing and decides he's now got the upper hand and like walks away from the table or something. But it, it would be really weird if Pelosi or anybody blew the deal up over like what they are still like apart on because if you just hear them explain it it just isn't enough like it's not enough money it's not enough anything but there isn't a real reason by the same token why should pelosi cave on a proper testing and suppression strategy as opposed to the white house caving on enough money for testing and at least some kind of suppression like i think that's actually a reasonable thing to try to like deal with 48 hours more of unpleasant negotiating and bad press to get but the question becomes really do you get it or not one of the underlying issues here continues to be the um, sort of weak and confused leadership of Donald Trump, right? I mean, like the, the Democrats' presumption heading into this, I think, is that Trump should really want stimulus and therefore Democrats should get a heavy role in shaping like where it goes, right? And it has just like that has just not proven to be true. 
like Trump, like now seems like he wants stimulus. But like this has been going on for months. Right. With like the White House not being engaged in a real way on what's what's going on. And, you know, unfortunately, the problem with the negotiation is that the side that has more willingness to be irresponsible and at least pretend to believe that no deal is okay for them, like gets the upper hand in this leverage, uh, this situation. And it is just true, I think, objectively, that like it's bad for causes Democrats believe in to not have a stimulus, but it's not that bad for their politics, right? For the country to just completely collapse this winter and like Biden takes over in an FDR-esque like state of emergency kind of situation. Yeah, but you needed to collapse before the election for that. I mean, the thing is that it collapsed before the election and FDR came in with congressional majorities like you can't even possibly right, imagine. Right, but now. I mean, well, but even, so, you know, the, the Senate stuff, you know, it, it's bad for the Republicans. Anyway, I, I don't think Democrats should do it because I think, you know, I, I think a good guiding principle in politics is that when the politics of something are uncertain, like you, you might as well just do the right thing. Um, rather than play a like 55% chance that like some catastrophe is going to work out well for you. Uh, but like it's dicey because it, what is true is that you don't want as a congressional leader, like you, you don't want a reputation for being a sucker. And I feel like Democrats have sometimes gotten into that position and that Pelosi is, you know, like rebuilding her rep as a like like a hard ass negotiator here very, very effectively. But they're just they're all like they're driving really close to the edge of the highway here. What did we have? There was a time story this morning. It's a eight million people uh, have have gone into poverty now. We've had uh, initial jobless claims, which have been going down, start going up again. Everyone expects like, you know, like the whole outdoor dining scene is going to get worse over the winter. The virus seems to be getting worse. And like, I would just feel a lot better with something getting done. And I, I, I both, I find myself both like inclined to defer to Pelosi as a tactician, but also just thinking that like probabilistically, like I, the, the downside risk of not reaching a deal seems so much worse than, you know, leaving a little scratch on the table. I agree. My gut is that by the time we do weeds next week, there's been a deal, but I wouldn't put a high confidence on that. I guess we'll see. There you go. We'll see what happens. Um, okay, so uh, thanks to Ezra. Thanks to our sponsors. Uh, thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the weeds will be back on Tuesday. <sighs> do, 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 do.